I like rules. Always have. Clear-cut rules. Codified rules. Rules like yield to pedestrians in a crosswalk, drive on the right side of the road, and wait your turn at a four-way stop. Explicit rules make me comfortable. They help make the world a bit more predictable. They give me a clear framework for aligning my behavior. I like rules so much that I have a whole set that only exists in my brain. Many of those rules have to do with food. Things like fish and cheese don't go together. Every meal needs something crunchy. And don't mix ethnic flavor profiles unless you're intentionally doing a fusion thing. I might even go without eating if I can't eat without violating my own rules. And now that I've told you all of that, I remember why these rules only exist in my brain. I'm Tara McMullen, and this is What Works, the show that explores how to navigate the 21st century economy without losing your humanity. Now, while explicit rules put me at ease, the presence of implied rules makes me very nervous. I don't know what's off limits or what's expected of me. I don't know what others might do or not do. I feel anxious imagining all the ways I might step out of line without even knowing it. The anxiety can become so great that I avoid situations in which I don't know the implied rules, which is a lot of situations. If I don't know the implied rules of a new situation, I feel locked out. There's a big, heavy door between me and that new experience. Hanging on that door is a sign that says, keep out in bold red capital letters. Of course, I'm not locked out. And that sign doesn't actually mean much. All I'd need to do is turn the knob, open the door, and walk through. Everything would probably be fine. Now on a good day, I might try my luck with the door and pass through into a new experience. But unless I encounter explicit rules on the other side, I'll be hyper-vigilant about what the implied rules are and how I might be breaking them. By the time I cross back through the door into a more comfortable space, well, I am utterly exhausted. <sighs> On a not-so-good day, I'll pretend that it's not there to avoid feeling like an outsider. In her book, The Art of Gathering, Priya Parker makes a distinction between etiquette and what she calls pop-up rules. Etiquette is a set of inherited rules understood by a certain group of people as the way things are done, but generally not codified as rules per se. Pop-up rules, on the other hand, are explicit rules that guide the behavior of people who don't share a common understanding of implied rules. 
Parker explains that the general understanding and implied rules of etiquette convey a sense of fixedness or permanence. These social rules represent enduring right ways to be. But they are, of course, no such thing. They have the aura of permanence, but they're constructs of time and culture. They connote fixedness, but other times and cultures have done things very differently. Pop-up rules have no such pretensions. They make sure everyone involved is on the same page for the duration of their time together. A pop-up rule could be anything from no phones or other devices allowed to proactively share your pronouns when introduced to someone new, to ask questions rather than offer advice. These rules are communicated explicitly and everyone in the space the rules apply to agrees to them. No one has to guess what's expected of them. Etiquette, Parker explains, helps to organize and reinforce sameness. Pop-up rules, on the other hand, help to organize and accommodate difference. For someone who understands the etiquette of their group, well, pop-up rules can feel kind of odd, even stifling. Why do we need this extra layer of bureaucratic meddling in what is a perfectly normal situation? But that's just the thing. What's perfectly normal for those in power from the dominant culture isn't perfectly normal to those who aren't. Those who are subjugated or from non-dominant cultures spend an inordinate amount of time learning the implied rules of the groups they're part of. It's the only way to get through the door with the keep outside. And even then, stepping across the threshold is stepping into a situation that could become dangerous at any time. This is true socially and culturally, but it's also true at work. Maybe even especially true at work. So there's folkways and mores that determine how our culture work, right? And I was like, well, it turns out we have workways as well. That's Charlie Gilkey. Charlie is a friend, colleague, and frequent guest on What Works. He's the founder of Productive Flourishing, and he's written a new book called Team Habits, How Small Actions Lead to Extraordinary Results. So let's start with folkways because they're easier to understand. Like in American culture, like if Tara were to invite me over to her house, I don't know why she would, but in case she did, you know, it's traditional to bring a gift, right? And typically, like we could bring wine unless we know they have religion. So like that's sort of the standard folkway. You show up with wine. Now, nowhere in our culture is there an explicit rule that says if friend invites you over, then bring wine. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of one of those things we implicitly agree is a thing. And it's kind of pseudo-rude if I don't do it. Folkways are implicit rules. They're unspoken agreements, and they're socially reproduced. That is, we learn folkways through observation and imitation. Folkways are part of our intersubjective reality. And those are things that are real and true because you and I agree that they're real and true. So, money. You know, I pull out a five. I pull out a piece of cotton paper that has a five dollar bill on it, and we agree that it has some sort of value in exchange, and we base a lot of our reality based upon that, right? The fact that you and I can agree that a piece of paper that says five dollars is worth a certain amount of goods or services helps to grease the wheels of society. 
It enables a particular form of exchange, but it's not the only way to make buying and selling easier. We could agree at any time to conduct business in other ways, and we have. Historically, we used various forms of debt to buy and sell. We do to this day. After all, I haven't had a $5 bill or one of any denomination in my wallet for a few years now. Intersubjectivity is malleable by definition. And that's important because intersubjective realities aren't all rainbows and cupcakes. It's like if you look at systemic racism, if you look at um, systemic sexism, or you look at the white patriarchy and organizations, those are intersubjective agreements that we have that we agree are true because of just we agree that they're true. And the challenge that we're facing with some of the uprisings that some people are facing is that we're talking about those intersubjective realities and we're pointing out that it need not be that way, right? Mm -hmm. And we're pointing out the consequences of those largely implicit systems of behavior and what that does to different folks. Part of our intersubjective reality is that a certain amount of makeup on a woman is quote-unquote professional, and more than that amount of makeup isn't. A certain way of styling black hair is quote-unquote professional, and other ways of styling black hair aren't. A certain way of speaking is quote-unquote professional, and other ways of speaking aren't. But none of those judgments belong to objective reality. So we deal with objective reality, which is, you know, rocks are hard, water's wet, like those types of things that are independent of any observer. We can't even say they're part of someone's subjective reality. We have subjective reality, which is how I feel about things. It's not subjective reality because if I feel that a particular outfit is professional or not, that feeling is part of a learned social agreement, part of our intersubjective reality. So that's the non-work side of things. So take all of that and just apply it to work because the same thing is true. Charlie calls the unspoken agreements of the workplace workways. The day you show up, to most organizations, there's enough agreed upon general workways and ways in which we, you know, folk, like folkways, that you're able to operate in most organizations. So when we look at workways, there are a few different things that come in play. Org structure, right? How this particular organization structures itself. And if we're being super frank, org structure is about power. Who has it? How do you get it? How do you share it? Right? Um, how do you respect it? So on and so forth. Team habits are part of the constellation of workways. Team habits are the ways a team works together. In his book, Charlie writes, quote, If teams are working well or poorly, it's not really about the people in the team. It's about how they're working together. What's more, a team's habits have both a disproportionate effect on the experience of work and on the value created through that team. So it is in everyone's best interest, from frontline workers to the big boss, to have teams that really work. Everyone can change their team's habits. What we have done in work is ignored one axis of power. So we 
stick with personal power and institutional power. What this inevitably does is create unnecessary conflict because if it's institutional powers, it's the line workers versus the executives or, you know, the workers versus management, the classic Marxist thing, right? And you can't get out of that logjam, right? If it's about personal power, it's about winning over other people, right? It's about sort of that dominance and things like that, which also has its problems. But there's this middle axis, actually, of team or relational power that we don't, like, forget about and completely overlooked and keep ourselves mired in either conversations and tensions around personal power or conversations and tensions around institutional power. Charlie uses team habits to activate team power. Focusing on team power takes pressure off the individual. At the same time, it empowers each member of the team to improve work for everyone. And so when we really start looking and say, you know what, for the rest of this conversation, I'm going to assume Tara is a teammate, right? When I am talking to Tara as a teammate, personal power sort of fades away because we're in this together. We agree that we're like, we generally like each other. We agree that we want to show up. We don't want to screw each other over. <laughs> like we know that we depend upon each other. There's a different way in which we relate and can relate that we don't need our bosses to talk to us about. We don't need higher ups. We don't need a policy, right? But I'm also not trying to dominate Tara, right? We're just trying to get through the day well and have fun and, and do things like that. So when you focus on team habits, you're actually focusing on this middle layer. So that's really what I want people to really think about is these wonderful people that you work with that you generally like. How about we treat them as the same way I would treat Tara and say, hey, what can we do together? Because we're going to be showing up to work anyways. How about we make work better together? This all sounds reasonable enough, right? And it is. But it's easy to forget how subversive this can be in your average workplace or even in your average home office. Unspoken, pre-existing workways are almost always based on hierarchy. Expected behavior is based on your role, your responsibilities, and where you fit on the ladder in relation to others. Whether or not I can walk through the door or how I'll be received on the other side is determined by my position in the hierarchy. And unexamined, hierarchy tends to default to patriarchal white supremacy norms. Yeah, so this is the What Works podcast, so we're going to go there. <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> so many of those structures that you're talking about are actually the characteristics of white supremacy in our society and organizations. Right. So some of those characteristics are like, and I'm just going to use Tim Okun's model in this one. So one right way, mm -hmm. right? Right to comfort, right? Primacy of the written word. I can go down all 13, right? But when you really look at them, um, what you start actually untangling is that maybe, maybe we don't have to operate in this hierarchy mm -hmm. where there are some people, typically in our society, white men who win, and are served and the rest of us who lose and serve them. When you start pushing against perfectionism, when you start pushing against that um, power is automatically hierarchical and that there's only one version, if you start pushing against that there's only one way of being a good leader in the world, when you start pushing against a lot of those things, it opens up space for actual true contributions for people. But it's incredibly uncomfortable because what you are doing you know, if you look at 
people who have gone on sort of the collegiate pathway and, you know, they're getting to work when they're 23, 23 or 24, they've had two decades of being socialized that the teacher's right. When the bell goes off, you do this. You get in line. Here's the right answer to this. Like, they have been socialized in that way. The penultimate chapter of Team Habits is about the politics of Team Habits. Charlie writes, quote, When I say that Team Habits are political, I'm not talking about backstabbing power plays, cliques, in-groups, or all the other negative connotations of workplace politics. Instead, I'm talking about the process of bringing a group of people together around a common initiative. Team habit change is about alignment, not power. One of the takeaways that I want people to have from team habits is actually to take a step back and have some empathy for their fellow workers, no matter where they are in the echelon. And don't assume they're idiots and bastards and people just out to get you. What if they are really overwhelmed doing the best they can, have competing priorities, and are just trying to get through the day like you are. Okay, like if you accept that, then you start to be able to build teamwork and partnerships and things like that. Just like Priya Parker identifies pop-up rules as a tool for more inclusive gatherings, Charlie identifies team habits as a tool for more effective and inclusive work environments. By making team habits explicit, we have a chance to examine the status quo and change it to make it better. Because when you make the obvious explicit, you realize that it wasn't that obvious. <laughs> right? It was obvious to you, but it wasn't obvious to someone else. And so, you know, and I, I have to preface this because I'm, I'm preempting some complaints that people are going to have. Because they're like, this doesn't scale, Charlie. I'm not talking about it scaling. <laughs> I'm talking about this being between four to eight people that you spend most of your work days with. If you go down the relationship aisle in any bookstore and look at the questions being asked there and then walk down the business aisle, you'll notice they're asking the same questions, right? On the personal relationship aisles, are they the one? How do we have more positive experiences with each other? How do we not fight as much, right? How do we, you know, share a plan about where we're going? How do we build resources? Okay, those are just some that are asked on that one. Walk down the business aisle. How do we have more positive? How do we make work more fun and interesting? How do we build resources? Is this the right job for me? Same questions. It's fundamentally about relationships. So because it's fundamentally about relationships, any work that you do to improve the relationships with your teammates will not go in vain. And when you do that, when you create that bedrock of belonging and rapport and trust, that's when you can get the highest performance in your team because you can continually raise the bar that you all want to raise together. So, um, and even if you don't increase performance, you show up to work, and feel seen and valued as a human and show other humans that they're seen and valued as well. And we need a lot more of that in this world. <laughs> yes. To open a door that has been kept closed is an important act, writes Ursula K. Le Guin. Improving team habits opens a door. 
It invites people in. It acknowledges, appreciates, and even empowers people. Improving team habits will probably improve team performance. But even if it doesn't, we get the benefit of seeing ourselves and others as human beings. Huge thanks to Charlie Gilkey for sharing his insight and analysis with me for this episode. You can find out more about Charlie at ProductiveFlourishing.com. You're going to hear more from my conversation with him in my upcoming series, Strange New Work. And in the meantime, definitely go out and grab your copy of Team Habits, How Small Actions Lead to Extraordinary Results at your local independent bookseller, bookshop.org, or wherever you buy books. Changing your relationship to work is hard. There is a ton of social conditioning, economic friction, and even relationship challenges to wade through. Even if you really want to change, you can easily get caught up in old patterns. And no one knows this better than the coaches, consultants, managers, and guides of all kinds who work with people who, well, work. If you're one of those guides, you already have a bunch of tools for helping people know what their values are and what really matters to them. You have tools for helping people identify their next steps. But where you might feel a bit uneasy is helping your clients or team members identify the external influences that keep them stuck or stressed. That's why I'm leading a 12-week certificate program called Work in Practice. You'll learn how to spot the social, political, and economic systems that make change hard. Because until we can unravel those systems and question our most basic assumptions about work, we won't be able to break the cycle and imagine a more sustainable and nourishing way forward. Work in Practice starts September 20th. Learn more about the program and view the program syllabus at workinpractice.life. That's workinpractice.life. What Works is a production of Yellow House Media, a podcast production agency for people changing the way we think about culture, creativity, leadership, and work. Our production coordinator is Lou Blazer. Our production assistant is Emily Kilduff. This episode was written and edited by me, Tara McMullen. Marty Seafelt is our audio engineer. And Sean McMullen is our fearless leader and executive producer. What Works is produced on stolen land. We're grateful to the Susquehannock and Conestogo peoples who stewarded this land for thousands of years before the arrival of white colonists. The Yellow House is on the unceded land of the Kutenaha Nation and the tribes of the Salish and Kalispell. <laughs>